Welcome to episode 102 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And today we're talking about a very exciting new production of Medea, starring Oscar-nominated Sophie Ocanido as the spurned wife of Jason, hell-bent on brutal and bloody revenge. All the male parts being played by Ben Daniels, who last acted together with Sophie Ocanido in 2011 at the Royal Court's production of Haunted Child. Medea is only on for a short 10-week run, so we're telling you about it now so you can book. It runs from the 17th of February till April the 11th at Soho Place on Tottenham Court Road, the first new purpose-built theatre in the West End for 50 years. Amazing. Players being directed directed by celebrated theatre, film and television director Dominic Cook. He was the artistic director of the Royal Court from 2007 to 2013. He directed Clybourne Park, staged Jez Butterworth's Jerusalem, Lucy Preble's Enron, Nick Payne's Constellations. And since then, Dominic's clocked up a raft of critically acclaimed successes, including Follies at the National Theatre, which was nominated for 10 Olivia Awards. He was part of the team that adapted and developed the hugely successful television series The Hollow Crown, and his first, first feature film was On Chesil Beach, based, of course, on Ian McEwan's novel. His second film, The Courier, with Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Buckley, was released in 2021. And, phew, I'm exhausted. He's recently directed <laughs> David Tennant in Good and Nicola Walker in The Corn is Green. So we're extremely honoured to welcome him onto our podcast. Hello, Dominic. Hello. Hello, Dominic. And it's an absolute delight to have you with us. Now, before we start talking about the play itself, let's talk a bit about the theatre, because I know the fact it's not a traditional proscenium arch theatre was one of the deciding factors in Sophie Ocanido taking the part. And you particularly wanted to have the actors and audience less divided. So they became witnesses to the protagonist's decisions. I haven't been to Soho Place yet, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners won't have done. So tell us a bit about your decision to stage the play there. Well, it's um, we we'd done this. Uh, there's a bit of backstory to this. I had I've, I've known Sophie very well for a very long time, and I've always thought she should play Medea. And I had had a go at her a few years ago and tried to get her to do it, but she just said, "No, I don't want to do that play. Thank you very much. I don't <laughs> want to be the woman who does what Medea does. I don't want to <laughs> offer spoilers to those people who don't know the play." But I talked to her read, doing a reading of it, which we did. And she got more excited about it. And in that reading, I proposed the idea that the chorus in the play would be sort of integrated into the audience because they're sort of representing the public, if you like, and that we would need a space that wasn't a sort of end on proscenium space where the audience were very aware of the sort of conversation that's going on between the public and the protagonist. And as it happened, Nika Burns was sort of in the final stage of the building Soho Place, um, and she's the the owner of it. And uh, she asked me to come and have a look at it. And even in its unfinished state, I could see that it was a perfect space for what we wanted to do. Um, the dynamics of the theatre are brilliant. And the audience, there's not a bad seat in the, in the house. And the audience feel very connected to the stage, which is actually a bit like a Greek theatre, because, you know, you know, they didn't have electricity. So you were looking at the audience in daylight and they're sort of very although they're huge the the, the greek theaters there's a, there's a sort of real sense of heat and presence for the audience when i came to see it, i thought well, maybe this would work and we brought sophie to the space and she actually burst into tears when she walked into the stage and that was the clincher so why sophie because i mean this is a huge part madea i mean the last time i saw madea was helen mccrory of course the wonderful late helen mccrory was playing her and it it's such a devastating play what was it about sophie that 
made you think she was so right for the role and why Medea now at this stage in your career? Well, I'll answer the first one first bit first. I mean, I, you know, Medea is incredibly sort of connected to nature. It's a sort of shamanistic role. She is someone who has a sort of natural authority, but she's also someone who has a belief in or sort of superstition, really, and um, in what we might call witchcraft. And Sophie's got this sort of sense of visceral power, sort of like she's hardwired into the sort of core of the earth. And um, when she's in the right play and supported in the right way, she has a sort of freedom that is very rare. And I just had a very strong feeling that she would be able to connect with the material. She's sort of fearless. And it needs that. Um, in terms of Medea, I mean, I've never done a Greek play before, although I've sort of, the sort of building blocks of Greek drama are always in the heart of what I do. And Medea is particularly interesting to me because it's sort of a bit like, uh, at the moment, it sort of resonates as being something about, I can't think of the right word, this sort of culture we've got at the moment of incrimination and revenge and cruelty um, and the idea of sort of, that, that sort of visceral responses to situations are somehow a good thing, which has sort of grown up, I think, or, or sort of built up from social media. And really the play at its heart, the most important thing about the play, I think, is that it sort of questions the ethics of revenge. And it shows someone who is so locked into righting a wrong that has happened that they can't see sense and they won't listen to a more sensible, <laughs> want a better word, response to their an injustice that has been uh, that they've been on the receiving end of so I think there's something about the temperature of that um that felt really timely and I I, I kind of I, I sort of every day I mean maybe it's just getting older but every day I sort of dip, I find myself more appalled and full of disgust really at, at the way that the sort of mob mentality that has sort of become the norm. Actually, the public are much more reasonable in this play than they are on Twitter. But there's something about that dialogue that, you know, and, and their sort of connection with an outsider, because she's an outsider, partly because she's a woman, partly because she's been wronged, and partly she's a foreigner. And that there's something else very interesting about how society looks at foreigners and treats them. But you're using a 1946 translation, aren't you? Which is interesting. Why? not a more contemporary one? Well, we just read loads of them and we, I was initially thinking we should get a new one commissioned, but we'd used this translation, which is actually an American translation by a very interesting man called Robinson Jeffers, who was a pacifist. He was a conscientious objector and he was also an environmentalist way before such a thing really existed. He was a sort of, lived a very sort of isolated life away from society. And, in, and he's a wonderful wordsmith. And I just think these plays are very, very hard to render if you don't have a sort of poetic imagination bringing to life in the language of the mm. audience. He really does that. And what's fascinating about it, although it was written then, it because it's sort of written in this poetic, but poetic sounds like it could be problematic. It's not because it's just brilliant poetry, brilliant metaphors. It feels very present and very alive. And we just thought, are we going to get another translation as good as this? Well, perhaps it's significant that it was written just after the war as well, given Absolutely. what you said about how how you're staging Medea in the middle of a kind of social media war, I guess. You're right. And of course, yeah, your point about social media is is it's not just uh, individuals taking chunks out of each other or taking chunks out of celebrities. It's also our leaders, in effect, Donald Trump, for example. Right, exactly. Using social media to those ends. 
yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, what is interesting is I sort of think that in the play, in his version, in Robinson Jeff's uh, version of the play, he's thinking about uh, Hiroshima and he's thinking about the Holocaust. He's yeah. thinking about the devastation of Warsaw at the end of the, you know, mm. of Europe, of Germany at the end of the war. And he's thinking about those sort of cycles of, of recrimination. But, you know, the danger of sort of tit for tat, how it's a vortex that always ends in death and disaster. So, and that sort of shadow does hang over the play when the chorus is saying, mm. you go this way and it will end in death and disaster because you have to sort of take the higher ground. You know, they, they, it's really interesting because the women who are in the chorus, they sort of, un they absolutely understand, they share Medea's sense of, rage at the fact that she's been abandoned sort of used but they also understand that reacting to that with more aggression and sort of in a punitive way is going to be very harmful it's going to open up something very dangerous and that's sort of one of the ideas in the play that's really important and has been very well released in this translation i think what you're doing really differently though is you're using one actor ben daniels to play all the male parts tell us about that well it's just the sort of well first of all you know that greek drama well initially there were only two actors and then there were three <laughs> <laughs> how many how many male parts are there six seven there's sort of two really key male roles and that's jason and creon who's the sort of president and the political leader and there's a couple of there's sort of other smaller roles but i just sort of really like this idea that they were all sort of an embodiment of the same force because in the play that i, I think sort of creon's society is 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 not like the athenian society it's much more sort of authoritarian it's a bit more putin-esque and so it's, it's, <laughs> a sort of, it's a sort of paranoid aggressive male sort of the worst sides of, of of the archetypal masculine and i thought it'd be really interesting to sort of have that embodiment played out in different by, by the same actor in, in different ways so it becomes a bit more of a sort of battle of the sexes part of the reason she's dispensable is because she's a woman in a society where women don't really have much traction and so that and so that's sort of a central thing of this sort of war between men and women powerful men and female outsiders sort of comes to the center when you when it's done this way i think jason finds it really hard that his wife's more powerful in a way than he is because she's half god Medea. her grandfather was oh. so and i don't mean the newspaper um so she's sort of connected to the world of the gods and and she was the person that got him the golden fleece through her using those sort of forces so there's always part of him that feels incomplete because he didn't do it himself and also he's sort of got this thing and uh, that he was destined to be king it's a bit like hamlet he was usurped so there's a sort of incomplete part of his life and creon the the, the ruler of the, of the country sort of gives him the possibility of achieving that by marrying his daughter by marrying creon's daughter and so he sort of made a deal before the play starts and he sort of goes you know i sort of need this i need i'm not a complete man without this and that's one of the reasons why he he leaves he leaves Medea and Medea is also a sort of dangerous political force because she's what what people would call today the ghastly phrase she speaks truth to power there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of backstory that she's sort of she's reckless in her criticisms of Creon so I think there's a there's a, you know there's a lot about his identity as a man that is up for grabs here and he's trying to reclaim that in a world where those things matter because the world of this play being a man, having sons, 
it really your, your sort of um, status is 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 based around sort of very traditional ideas of what being a man should be. Mm. Now, Dominic, what's going on in the world of theatre? I had forgotten, of course, that Nika Burns was building this new theatre. It's amazing, really. I mean, after COVID and the trauma of COVID, theatre, certainly in London, seems in rude health and also innovative. Uh, I mean, our theatre has always had this very interesting mixed economy in Britain. When you look at the rest of Europe, it doesn't work like that. It's sort of the state's a sector and the private sector are totally separate. I do think running theatres now is subsidised theatres is fiendishly hard. During COVID, the industry lost a lot of employees. There were lots of redundancies in the subsidised sector. And then there were also lots of people who left the industry and went to work in film and television because they were left high and dry uh, with no income during COVID. And they just sort of drew a line under it and moved away. So there's that problem. There's getting audiences back, which is difficult. I mean, some shows are doing very well. We just did a show with David Tennant and that sold out completely. I think audiences... Mm, I saw yeah, it. It's it, fabulous. It, it, mm. Oh, thank you. It seems to me that audiences at the moment will definitely come out for a great actor. Everything else is up yeah. for grabs. I mean, even the long, even the really long-running musicals are not doing as well as they used to. Obviously, tourism is wobbly, et cetera, et cetera. So there are lots of factors. And then there are the sort of internalised political pressures. Of, you know, how do theatres respond to the need for representation? How do they manage that? You've got a huge amount of pressure to perform representation. And... Many of the reasons for this are good ones. Of course, diversity is important. Of course, especially in a city like London, you want your workforce to look like and feel like the people who are on the street. But I think what it's done, or the way it's been done, is sort of so reactive and unthought through that there are a lot of theatres that are posturing and sort of focusing on the optics rather than thinking creatively about how sort of diversity in all its forms actually enhances the quality of the work and become something that is valuable in producing better work. And, you know, I, I sort of do believe that. So I think if you have, I mean, the Royal Court used to do this. If we didn't have plays from young Muslim writers, we went out and found the Muslim writers to write the plays and we actually got them on because that was a, it was, it wasn't about a sort of appearance of worthiness. It was about, well, where's the, where are the interesting stories that we haven't heard? You know, I think that sort of approach is welcome, but I think there is so much pressure to appear to be acting in a certain way and to be sort of perfect in terms of delivering um, in audiences and staff members and, and work on stage representation um, and equity. And it's really hard to do all that at the same time as trying to raise money and trying to do shows that audiences want to see and, and, and. That I think, and, and then the judgment from the social, from social media, if anyone takes, puts a foot wrong, you know, it's just, it's not a creative climate. And I sort of feel like, Fear is incredibly detrimental to creativity. So when people start worrying about how they're going to come across and whether they're going to judge for doing the right thing, whether they're going to appear to be progressive or not, um, I think it's an unwelcome development, even though the intentions behind it in many ways are very desirable. I think that there's a temperature in the arts at the moment that is not helpful. And yet, you've just started your own new production well, company. I did that, I did that before. <laughs> yeah, but this yeah. is only your second production, isn't it? After Good yeah. with David Tennant. Well, we did. And... Um, yeah, we did that. We did the Normal Heart as well with the National. We we took that. To, that was a co-production. So it's sort of the third one. Yeah. Yes, we did. But we actually sort of started that before all of this. And that, and actually, we the joy of doing 
commercial projects is that that's your driver. That is your driver. It doesn't mean, I mean, we wouldn't be doing it if we weren't doing work we really wanted to do. And the play we did with David Tennant was quite a challenging play. But there is a sort of sweet spot where you can find really interesting projects and actors that want to do them. And this is the idea of the company we've got and, and make actually very interesting and good work that audiences want to see. But you have to be thinking all the time about, well, how who's going to want to come and see that? And how is that going to be, how is that going to work as a commercial proposition? How do you think the National's doing? Well, I'm an associate of the National, so I'm going to tell you that it's doing well. I mean, and it actually is doing well in terms of what it's delivering. Dominic, you've got to, you've got to speak truth to power here. Truth <laughs> <laughs> to power. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think they're navigating an incredibly difficult period dexterously and you know they're doing a lot of good work I think I wouldn't want to be running that institution and I wouldn't want to be running any theatre right now and actually they're delivering you know if you look at the number of good shows they deliver in my opinion it's no different to the number of good shows that Nick was delivering there's a there's a different sort of narrative around the theatre and narrative is really important with running arts organisations because I think if audiences can understand and the public generally can sort of understand the story of the theatre they will fit the artistic successes and failures into that story and I think that's what Nick did brilliantly because actually he had some massive turkeys during his time um, but that wasn't the perception because he sort of he sort of created an environment where you sort of understood the context and that's harder to do. I've just been talking to somebody about the portrait of Oh My which people are trying to save and it does seem that the arts has um across the borders, you know, and then you've got the cut of funding to the ENO has lost its sort of confidence. No, no. shout from the rooftops about why the arts are important. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started in a year dot, it was sort of the end of the 80s and the cutbacks in the arts were very big from the, from the Thatcher government and it had been incremental over a long period of time. But there was such a strong response that sort of everyone came together. And I do remember, you know, uh, Peter Hall jumping up and, you know, and really sort of laying into the government. Now, you don't see that anymore. And maybe that's the wrong thing to do. But I sort of do feel that that sort of advocacy, as you say, Ed, confidence in what we do and why we do it as a as a sort of collective is not as evident as, as I wish it was. For example, I think, for, I mean, I've been banging on, on the internet a bit about this, but I think the cut to Hampstead, theatre yes. is a disastrous decision yes. because that's part of the infrastructure of new writing and I think the decision was made in a very lazy and superficial way because the perception is that Hampstead is a rich area mm. actually that bit of NW3 is not it's all mm. social housing so the mistake and, and and actually it's not about the local what that theatre does is it puts writers from all over the country on and it's a really big resource you know the literary department I mean if you look at the writers that have come through there over the years I think that was a terrible mistake and I've been sort of shocked by the lack of support from other theatres and other artistic leaders this is not about I got my money so I'm okay and thank you very much government it's about really making a point about what matters but I agree I think there's a an important sort of bigger argument about why the arts matter and what they're for and why um they're worth putting government money into. Well, Dominic, thank you so much. What a great place to end on how important the arts are, something we couldn't agree with more. And actually, the National is about to put on that amazing play from Sheffield, isn't it? It's coming down yeah, from is, the Crucible. Oh, yeah. It's got, I think the National has got coming up six or seven mm. really strong shows. 
I think it's going to be, I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, you never know, but reading the runes, I think it's going to be going into its strongest period mm. for a while. It does look like there's it. Some really good work. Yeah, there's some really good stuff on, on the cards. So, yeah, which is great. I, I mean, I always lift your heart when things are good and you've got good work. That's what I'm interested in is is as much good work on the stages as possible. That's that's what matters. Well, huge good luck with uh, Madea. It sounds it's going to be absolutely Thank fabulous you. and I hope it's packed out and sold out and that Fiction House, your new production company, well, newish production company, goes from strength to strength. Thank you so much, Dominic, for coming on the podcast. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Just before we go, we wanted to big up the National Youth Theatre a bit because we both have a vested interest in it. In fact, it was you, Ed, when you were a trustee of the theatre who persuaded me to get my daughter to audition, which she did aged 18 and went on to describe her time there as just about the happiest of her life and certainly life-changing. Yep, it was fantastic to be a trustee for the National Youth Theatre for so long. Indeed, my daughter is due to audition for it quite soon as well, so fingers crossed. Anyway, they're now putting on a production of Much Ado About Nothing at the Duke of York's Theatre for just three days between the 7th and 10th of February. It's revised by Deborah Steverson, who's a grime artist, poet and playwright, and it's directed by NYT alumna Josie Daxter. It's guaranteed to be Much Ado as you've not seen it before, and there are going to be a thousand... £10 tickets on sale. Alongside this production, on Friday the 10th, the Duke of York is hosting the first ever all-night West End youth takeover by the National Youth Theatre and some of Britain's leading voices. There'll be new work by huge names like Lolita Chakrabarti and James Graham, and their work will be staged by the country's new generation who will also show their own work. Now, two weeks ago, listeners were fascinated to hear about how Joseph O'Connor is using giant screens around the world, including the one on Piccadilly Circus, to spread messages of hope from artists throughout 2023. He talked to us about the Dalai Lama's contribution to January, but has, had has not yet confirmed his artist for February. We can now tell you that it's Anne Imhoff, the German visual artist, choreographer and performance artist who specialises in endurance art. That certainly piqued my interest, but actually it's a rather poetic, beautiful film called Youth that launched on Friday in Hong Kong. And you can watch it on Circa.art as well, of course, on those big screens around the world. We're going to end today's episode with a special celebration of one of our guests. As regular listeners will know, few people have been on the podcast more than once, but Kit Hesketh Harvey has, and listeners will know him as the much-loved, wickedly entertaining cabaret artist, pantomime villain, comedian, and brilliantly talented scriptwriter and writer. I'm extremely sad to say that Kit, who was also a very good personal friend, died suddenly just a few days ago. Kit was one of our first ever guests and he came on with James McConnell while we were still lockdown culture to talk about their superb cabaret act Kit and McConnell. Later on, after we become breakout culture, we invited Kit back to tell us about his opera, The Life and Death of Alexander Litvinenko. It's typical of Kit that he would think to write the libretto for an opera about a murdered Russian political activist, but he did and it was staged at Grange Park Opera. On that same episode, he also talked to us about the joys of pantomime and its crucial role in introducing children to the theatre. Here he is at the end of 2021 telling us about playing King Rat. But you opened last night in Dick Whittington and you played the villainous King Rat. How was it for you, Kit? It's fantastic. It's my, I think, my 11th performance here at the Yvonne. 
the, th the third time I've given my dick to Yvonne, um, uh, Yvonne Arnaud, ah yes, Arnaud, <laughs> ah yes. Um, and uh, uh, it is, well actually it's not that disconnected from Litvinenko, because honestly, the, like those two goons who were sent over for Skripal, they were straight out of Panto, weren't they? But the, um, uh, yeah, it's... It's a theatre, because my maternal line comes from here, from around Guildford, um, uh, I was taken, marched by my um, ocean-going beast of a grandmother uh, to watch the Yvonne Arnaud <laughs> actually being built. Yes, I am that old. Um, and I'm spearheading the campaign to, um, to gain funds to... It needs about eight million, so if there's somebody who wants their name on a studio theatre or a rehearsal room or a rehearsal block. Um, now's the time to step forward. But anyway, that's incidental. Panto is tremendously important. It's a child's first experience of the theatre generally, and it's the first time you can grab a child by the metaphorical um, collar, or neck actually, um, and say, look, this isn't a video game, this isn't um, a film, this isn't telly, this is something much more exciting called theatre. And the villain always comes on first, of course. Stay downstage less is actually reeking with tradition. And you get a minute in which to terrify the kids. And uh, I think my record is nine carried out screaming in one minute. Uh, and you think, ka-ching, I've, I've done it. But, but um, <laughs> King Rat is one of the best because he's got this tail, you see. He's got this tail, which is um, very good for what Panto has to do, which is play on two levels, one for the children you know, enthrall them and terrify them and make them laugh and clap and sing. And then at the same time, nodding and winking to the grown-ups, saying, isn't this all ridiculous? Isn't it fun? Isn't Panto stupid? But anyway, uh, so so we opened last night, which is why I sound um, as though I've been dragged through gravel. And, well, and oh um, it was great. It was just great. Panto back. Yay! And, you know, kids out there clapping and screaming and, and their little saucer eyes looking up at you. But you have been so eloquent over the years about pantomime and why you love it. But but just tell our listeners, why why is it that you go back Every year, you've been doing it for 11 years to this theatre and playing pantomime. What, what's so wonderful about it? What is it? I wish I could say there was anything noble about it. It's just very, very nice to work with um, young people and they're teaching you stuff that you would otherwise not know. You would sort of slump into this um, ancient white male BBC sofa and... and um, and become too conventional and too smug and too set in your ways. No, it's it's just a bit spoily. It's a bit spoily, and it's an exciting way to to have Christmas. You know, Christmas is for children and excitement and about Advent and about um, the, this huge sense of anticipation. I, and and what the arts have gone through, I'm terribly, terribly lucky. You know, to be working. Oh, well, that's wonderful, and the audiences just must be thrilled to have you. Well, Charlotte, I hope to see you there. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. That was the wonderful, utterly irreplaceable Kit Hesketh Harvey talking to us in December 2021. And if you want to hear the whole conversation, including what he had to say about Litvinenko, you can find it in episode 59. Like all of us who knew him, I'm going to miss that irrepressible life force that he represented desperately. Next week, we'll be talking to the much-loved broadcaster and long-time anchor of the Today programme, Ed Sturton. He's just published his memoir called Confessions. I'm reading it now and it's impossible not to smile at his kind and gentle humour as he recounts the ups and downs of a life spent in broadcasting. We're really looking forward to him telling us about 
liked it, so don't fail to tune in then. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you. If there's something you'd like to hear us profiling, please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.